This is a HeadGum Podcast. Vulture's Good One Podcast is sponsored by Visible, a new phone service that gives you unlimited everything, including data at speeds up to 5 megabits per second on Verizon's 4G LTE network for just $40 a month, all in. Hello, and I'm Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox, and this is Good One, a podcast about jokes, the podcast in which a guest comes on to play and talk about one of their jokes, bits, sketches, etc. Usually the podcast comes out on Mondays, but this episode is just so special I had to get it up as soon as possible. That's because our guests are the Lonely Island, or at least Annie Sandberg and Akiva Schaefer, the two members of the trio primarily responsible for the Netflix special, The Unauthorized Bash Brothers Experience a self-described visual poem slash fever dream imagining the life of the 1988 Oakland Athletics sluggers Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. So why is the episode special? Well, I don't know if there is anyone that has created more comedy that I love so deeply and so enthusiastically than The Lonely Island. And similarly, I don't know if there's anyone in comedy I've written more about, including a 4,000-plus word opus for Vulture, How the Lonely Island Changed the Internet, Comedy, and Especially Internet Comedy. On the episode, we talk about the Bash Brothers special, as well as the group's first foray into live performance, as they are going on their first tour this June. Almost exactly a year ago, the Lonely Island played their first ever official concert as part of Clusterfest in San Francisco, and that is where these characters made their debut, as Akiva and Andy performed the song that will be the subject of this episode, Jose and Mark. So, here is Andy Sandberg and Akiva Schaefer as Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire, respectively. Welcome back to Sports Chat. I'm standing here with two fellas who are having a heck of a year, the Bash Brothers. At this point, guys, I think everyone knows who you are, but just in case, why don't you introduce yourselves? Oh, okay. Well, they call me Jose. And I'm Mark. Jose. And I'm Mark. Go, Jose, go, oiled up like Rambo. Take the needle out my butt and hop in the Lambo. I play first base. They call me Jose. And I'm Mark 
We're here with the Bash Brothers themselves, Andy Samberg and Akiva Shaver. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, joining me. Our pleasure. We're here, the Bash Brothers themselves. Yeah, the yes. real ones. <laughs> so watching the Netflix version, uh, it instantly reminded me of growing up and loving Michael Jordan in so much that it's like I was obsessed with him and then as I got older, I started learning that he was like an asshole and then it was like an innocence lost moment where I still valued him, but I kind of saw him more as a person. So you guys were right in the sweet spot for the Bash Brothers. You, you're growing up in the Bay Area and I know at least Andy had a poster. Before we even talk about the album and the special, what was your personal journey with thinking about the brothers and the ideas of heroes in general mm. from being a kid to the steroid stuff to being public figures yourself? I mean, I think we all had the poster. Definitely. I was as big a fan of the Bash Brothers as a kid can be of a thing. I was, you know, they were it for me. And, you know, growing up in the Bay, they were so fun to watch. Not different, honestly, than how it is watching the Splash Brothers now on the Warriors, where yeah. it's just like everyone in the Bay was completely ignited by it. And those, te- those A's teams in general were just incredible to watch. They were like, I put them up there with like Showtime Lakers and those kinds of dynasties where you, there's just something special about it, the personality combined with the talent and the story that sort of built around that. And we were the right age for it. Yes, The perfect exactly. age of like... We were little dinky guys. Like 10 or 11 when you just can idolize. Yes. Something. And like playing Little League and like, yeah, now you give me a bash. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I, I never like fell out of love with them. And even when, yeah. when they're the steroid stuff was happening. It was so many years later that yeah. their their hero status in my life was solidified and kind of couldn't be. I, I agree. I, and all of our friends have kind of said similar things. We've been talking a lot with our, our buddies from back in the Bay because obviously we somewhere made this for them and us. Mm-hmm. More than anything, I just felt kind of sad for those guys because you know, we had genuine love for them and still do that that was something that, that they had to go through really. And that the, I mean, we do a lot of like deep, deep sarcasm on this thing, but, (laughs) but there, there is also truth to like that they work in a, a sport or in a, a job where there's that much pressure that you would try things like that, you know? So you first had the idea of doing something around the Batch Brothers because you want to do something new for Clusterfest and it was going to be your first live show and it's going to be in San Francisco and a hometown show. So it made sense. But sort of what was the initial spark when someone mentioned it? Did you instantly have an idea of what it would be like? (laughs) Like what did you think would be funny about it in that initial moment? Well, Keeve, you brought it up, I believe, the first time, yeah? Yeah, I have no idea, though. I mean, we were just trying to think of Bay Area stuff and... I don't know. And also just, it's fun to do music for us in the personas of something that is larger than life. Like for us, it's like you get to pretend to be a superhero almost. I would say not that dissimilar from like Wu-Tang or something. We're just doing like the super sarcastic, we hate ourselves version. (laughs) (laughs) Most of our other songs are in character of some sort, even if it doesn't say it explicitly. Like... Who is the throw it on the ground guy? I don't know, but he has a soul patch and he wears like a <laughs> we all kind of know Kangol hat and he's in like an old <laughs> army jacket and yeah, he's very specifically not you, but he doesn't have right. a name or anything. Like a lot of our the guy that did boombox looked a certain way. Like we would try to assign characters to yes. a lot of the stuff just because yeah. it's more fun to make music that way. For sure, a lot of our songs 
the same way, like our buddies from SNL, like Bill or Kristen or Fred or somebody would do characters, but they're also kind of loosely impressions of people they Mm -hmm. know. A lot of the times the songs we're making are that also, or just our impression of various styles of music. When I interviewed you guys for pop stars, you, uh, Akiva, you said the benefit partly of writing for a character, it's useful for whatever percentage of the audience doesn't get what we're doing. In so much as I think having an explicit character is a benefit. Is Have you noticed that it's sort of like it's clear to what you're trying to say when it is a character that is they have names and you can point to them and you have a backstory like that? Probably. I mean, it definitely clarifies that it's not specifically us, whereas you might be like, why are they saying that? if it was us saying it, certain things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I feel like we've only done like three or four songs where it's truly supposed to be us. And even then the joke is generally how much we suck. Yeah. (laughs) And it's still not us. We're making up lies within it. Like a lot of it's not true. You're saying the story about us having a a four way with an alien and Incredibad (laughs) didn't happen. No, that one was, that's real. (laughs) That's our origin story. It's about as much us as I assume like Larry David is in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Or like me and Reba. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That one was you. (laughs) That one was you. That was all too real. When I first saw the songs at Clusterfest, I remember, again, from when I first interviewed uh, Kiva, you said you guys like making fun of posturing and pretending to be cool and tough and masculine. In that way, how are the Bash Brothers sort of perfect muses for <laughs> your style. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. you just said it, basically. Yeah, yeah. They, they definitely embodied that 80s vibe that is both um, really fun and entertaining to watch and behold, but also has more and more and more become clearly problematic. Um, <laughs> but that's also not even specifically them. That, that We could have been any sports star from the Correct. 80s, I believe. We yeah. could have been football players or baseball players, any other baseball player. Yeah. A lot of what drew, like, drew us to doing this weird project is just those general ideas of like... Yeah, honestly, it combined guys. with a lot of sort of realizations about stuff we grew up on. Like we recently have had a lot of discussions about like revenge of the nerds and all these movies that we like grew up on that seemed Mm -hmm. really harmless and, and goofy. And then you watch them and you're like, Oh, this is rapey as fuck. Like, this is so uncool. How are we shown this as children? And it's, it's like the problem. So I feel like, uh, there's nothing about Mark McGuire or Jose Canseco specifically that we would assign that to, but we loved them and they sort of acted as this vessel through which we could explore how growing up in that era made us feel a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it has hopefully the duality of you understanding that we're huge fans of theirs, but also we're trying to be funny and also talk about why things were bad. We said this the other day, but like the whole thing is almost just our, as if we stopped learning anything when we were 11 and it's like what our dream of what their lives were like. (laughs) Like it's more of a encapsulation of what we thought we hoped was going on. (laughs) For this song and in general with the Bash Brothers, did you know what you wanted the vibe to be and then sort of looked for a beat that would go with that? Or were you going through beats and sort of built the, the vibe of this song off of it? This thing was not well thought out. We weren't. There was no plan. It was a little bit of both. It's always a little bit of both when we when we do our quote unquote music. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Like, this one's less planned than even anything else because we didn't have any intentions for where this project was going. No. We didn't think we would have a budget to shoot any videos. We were just but, making songs for fun. Yes. But once we were in it, sure. we, we could answer the question. Like, for example, we came up with the idea for bench pressing Bikini Babes as a song before we chose the beat because we were talking about, like, remember all those posters and yeah. videos of guys doing that and being like, can you believe it? Well, even <laughs> more specifically on that one, we actually made the beat with our friend Drew Campbell. Yeah, see, there you go, Keith. Because, because for the idea, it wasn't even, it wasn't just something we found or matched to an idea. We right. actually, it was composed for the song. I mean, it's a, it would be difficult to find a beat that sounds like an 80, like 80s 808 style rap beat that then goes into Enya. So I think we would have had <laughs> a hard time just tracking that one down. <laughs> Credit to Drew Campbell. Was this song a beat that you guys just found? That beat is, I mean, that's this guy, Jesse Shackin, who actually ended up helping mix almost every song on the record, but that's the one beat he made. And he, But that he, beat informed the joke of the song, for sure. Yeah. Because we, yeah. we turned it on, we were like, whoa, this is so epic, we love it. And then right. I did the, the, the Jose yell, and then I think he just the first <laughs> said time it, yeah, said, and I'm Mark. And we're like, oh, there's that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is, that is right. <laughs> In general, for lyrics, do you map out the comedic beats before you sort of write lyrics to it? No. Usually we write to the beat once we have a premise, and then we kind of pick and choose the stuff we like and jigsaw puzzle it together. Oh, interesting. On this one, that was especially the case, because there's so much back and forth, especially. Yeah, but not necessarily every line I say. Some of the lines I say you wrote, and vice versa. True. Like, like we'll give each other lines, even. Like, what's one that I wrote for you that you want to get out One that you wrote for me that people seem to really like is the... um, Pork one. My name is Mark, and no, I'm not Mork, and yes, I eat pork because it's tasty on my fork. That's the one. See? You know it. <laughs> and what lyric did you write to Andy? Probably just like, I'm a big dummy. Is that in the song anywhere? I mean, my I favorite like thing Kiva ever wrote that I got to say was the steps in Dick in a Box. Oh, yeah, that whole true. section was Akiva. Let's get that out there. Yeah. It's on a lot of shirts. Maybe they'll pay me <laughs> for it. <laughs> Dude, just follow these steps. One. Cut a hole in a box. <laughs> So sort of as dryly as possible, how do you write rap lyrics? Like literally just how does one sit down and do it? Do you start with the first line in a couplet or this last line? How do you write <laughs> rap lyrics? I don't think we're the best people to ask about this. Yeah, but you're the rappers. That, you are the only option that I sort of have. We are the top frappers in the game. We, we want to get that term a little more ubiquitous. Yeah. I've, I've coined it, frapping, fake rapping. And I just don't feel like anyone's saying it but me. Is it because it if sucks? If it could really catch on, then people could use it against real rappers and call them frappers. I feel like it's the a ultimate good, insult, it's a good, us, yeah. being us. The thing we're the proudest of could be an insult to others. I don't know exactly how to answer that question. It, you kind of like think of topics... You want to mm-hmm. say, and 
for us, it's so specific and narrow. It's like, it's why so few people do it exactly how we do it because most people who are really uh, good at writing jokes, like hopefully we are at this point, don't want to spend their time putting those jokes into rap form. <laughs> it kind of, it, it's the same as whether or not we write to a beat or we write ideas and then choose a beat. It's, it's never one way or the other. We kind of just, I guess, Keeve, you always like to say, follow your muse. Is that what you that say? That is, is my main thing. It's just get in touch with yourself. <laughs> And, and by that, um, I mean watch the movie The Muse. Yes, sure. of course. Yeah. Sharon Stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole gang. Albert Brooks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. I believe he wrote and directed it. <laughs> yep. And it serves us well. There's two parts in particular, like the, the rhymes with Maybelline, Dialysis Machine, mm. part of the game, motherfucking name. Mm. Do you have any member of how the thinking behind that, whoever wrote whatever parts of that? I think that was you. Um... Yeah. We knew we wanted to do a joke about the dialysis. I had actually read some yeah. some research on, on steroids and the dangers of them. So yeah, then the Maybelline is the um, connecting Keeves line before it. We also were like, it, there, we, I, I want to say there's like either a laundry list either like actually written down or just through conversation of like, we should probably talk about Skytel pagers. You know, for us specifically, we wanted to mention Hilltop Mall because that's where we went growing up in the Bay, like stuff like that. And I believe your line proceeding is the chicks of every flavor because we're in the majors or yeah. something like that. Girls yeah. of every flavor. Yeah. And then chicks hit up Muscatel. And then we knew we wanted to do that weird beat switch up because we were trying to make it a little more aggro and less less like predictable what the song was going to do because we figured that would help. Distract it's people. also semi set in '89, so <laughs> from song to song we would go. Let's try to Paul's boutique here, or let's try right, to, right. Um, you know, we do did things want, that yeah. NWA was doing at the time, or whatever was happening in 1989. And then very quickly we're like, okay, we did that on a couple songs. Yeah. Now let's do whatever we want to do. Knew we wanted to end on Machine. Knew we wanted to connect to Girls. Yeah. So the Maybelline. You're kind of just making it up, though. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> Let's try. All right, we're going to do another one. Cocaine fists caves your nose hole. They don't know, though. We like Samwise and Frodo, but also like Dorothy and Toto, but way more swole. Swole, bro. Yeah, way more swole, bro. Yeah. Our bodies are loco. I guess we could just say a higher power speaks through <laughs> us. and uh, We are mere conduit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You put the beat on on a loop, and then sometimes sometimes whole lines just come out, like in a, the equivalent of a freestyle, but in your brain. And then other times you just have to sit there and tweak it until it works. There's not really any good answer. The truth is that whole run is Olo, Doblo, Boblo, Blowblo syllables over and over again. So you'd have to go back further to track the beginning of it. Because preceding that is Step Into My Dojo, but that's rhyming with uh, like four other things, right? Extra guacamole. Where does that one even start? I think it's that whole verse. It starts with Canseco can make the hoes go low, slow mo for your bro, one time Otro. 1980 Ocho, the year of the Lobo. (laughs) Yeah. The whole Bay loved me because I'm so bolo. Some of our friends didn't know the term bolo, and I was surprised. What is it? Like super jacked. Yeah, it didn't really stick around that much. Yeah. So, year of the Lobo. Is that implying is the year of whatever the Lobo is? A horse? Lobo's a wolf, wolf in, yeah. in Spanish. Was it, it actually, the year of the Lobo? It was not the year of the... I'm saying it was It was my year, mm. and I'm a wolf. Right, but By it was me, not, I mean, the, Jose, it was not the fake technically Jose that we the year of the wolf. No, is no, that no. E- Is that even a, ch- a Chinese year? 
the year of the woman. I don't think so. We looked it no. up just so to be sure not. that it wasn't. So right. <laughs> so so it's not incorrect then because it's it's not even a possibility. It's so off, it's not even anything. The our version of Jose in this case is not referencing the Chinese calendar. No. At all. He's just saying it's He's his just year. saying, yo, it's my year and I'm a wolf. Was there any second where you considered having Mark McGuire be bad at music the entire song? We did talk about that. Yeah, we kept debating. We kind of, because we were having fun making all this music, kept, it, this is a problem with all our music, is a lot of times the jokes mess up the musicality of things. And we always have to kind of decide how unlistenable we're going to make something for a joke. <laughs> and it's always a balancing act since our first, since the first things we ever made, where you're like, well, it'd be way funnier to make it sound way worse right here. It's also and some, some songs we do make them sound very bad for that. It depends on if they're, we're sure there's going to be a video or not, like something like Shirani. Right. Or previous to that, Saxman. Correct. Which we thought we were going to make a video for, but then didn't. Yeah, we're happy to make something really sound bad if we know it's going to be supported visually. And we can prove and, to and people be, that it's on purpose. Yes, and it will be a good... Because <laughs> you'll do anything for a sketch to be funny. Yeah. Uh, anything. Anything. I mean, <laughs> humiliate yourself. These, we didn't know if they would ever be anything but something you would listen to. I mean, it's, we talked about just putting the whole thing on SoundCloud under a false name and just seeing if people found it. Uh, so in that way we settled on, all right, we'll just do it for the chorus and then I'll try to sound more normal for raps so that people actually maybe want to listen to it. When I interviewed Rachel Bloom, she she tries not to put the punchline on the on a rhyme, on a rhyme rhyme, because it will feel almost too predictable because you sort of have a sense of what's going. What is your relationship between rhyming and the joke construction, especially when you have, especially on this album where there are a lot of things we rhyme on the same sounds. I'm sure we've made changes for something like that, but not ever articulated it or made up any rule or anything. Like, I'm sure sometimes we construct something where we're like, oh, it'd be funny if you said it like this, but I can't even think It's also just is. personal choice. I mean, a lot of times in writing jokes for songs or for like an award show or for SNL or something, the suggestion will be end on the funniest word or what the joke is like reveal the joke at the last moment. I certainly understand what she means. There are cases where you want to be more nuanced with it and keep people off balance a little bit more. I think for us, it's where it falls in the song and also how much we think it's a good joke. <laughs> like, is it worth being like, and there's the joke pause love this. Or if you're like, yeah, that's fine. Let's sort of like throw it away. Or sometimes you're like, this is a great joke. And wouldn't it be cool if we totally threw it away? Yeah. That would seem like we're very confident. Since we're talking about lyric writing, I have to ask about the writing of the baseball team verse in Less Bash. What went into that as it is, I, I, I think, though you guys like to make fun of your own rapping, I think pretty good rapping. Oh, thank you. 
frapping, but yes. <laughs> Pretty good frapping. <laughs> Very good frapping. Pretty good rapping. Our goal <laughs> always fair. is to be at the top of the game in the frap world, because that's something we could maybe achieve. I don't remember why. I just thought that would be something fun to try. Um, and it was fun. It was a fun exercise. <laughs> uh, the humiliating part is that I included two teams that franchised after the year that the album supposedly or the special supposedly takes place. I don't really have a good excuse, but I will say when we were working on the album, we hadn't yet thought about making the special and we kind of contextualized the special as a story a little bit more. And I don't remember why I chose whatever years the Rockies and uh, Marlins came into play as my cutoff. But I will say I looked it up on Wikipedia and was like, yeah, maybe it was like Canseco was still playing or I don't know yeah. how I decided it, but it was. You had tried. You weren't just being yeah. sloppy. But I saw, yeah, everyone on Twitter, I see you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> everyone being those three people on Twitter. But yeah, it was it was neat to try and do something like that of like, maybe I could pull this off. And I even at one point realized that I forgot a couple of teams and I went back and rewrote a little bit. I need, I clearly need like a, um, a fact checker person the way that like the John Oliver show has or something. Just in life. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the, the difference between frapping and rapping, do you ever wish you didn't have to enunciate so much? I feel like the biggest difference between like what your goals are is that you have to like very clearly speak. It's like the same thing that happened with Hamilton, but like where real rappers will sort of slur. Yeah, we are beholden to people understanding our words. It even has to do with mixing the songs. Sometimes you want to mix the lyrics lower and let the musicality of the beat take over, and we're like, eh, but then people yeah. can't hear us. Especially when you start fucking with autotune, like we did a little a little kind of sound cloudy raps sounding stuff on this one. Like, yeah, but if you want to start getting into like Travis Scott, future Migos territory, if you're going to do a good impression of any of that world, then no one can hear your what you're saying. So the, it starts limiting the only jokes to being like gibberish jokes, like jokes about the fact that you can't understand. Which has been done. Exactly. Well. So for the video for, for this one first, the Mark and Jose, what were you thinking? Why did you decide to work with Mike Diva? What does it mean for you all to have an outside director at this point? Yeah, well, the first thing, just Mike Diva in general is, I met him randomly, just literally ran into somebody on the street who told me about him because he had just had a meeting with him. I was like, you should meet with this guy. And then I went and watched all his YouTube videos and like met with him essentially the next day. And that was a year ago about, and it was right when we needed somebody to help us make what was on the screens at Clusterfest. And so he made all the videos with his team for what's behind us at the concerts. So that was our kind of... Yeah, uh, and he was amazing, like really clearly talented and super funny and the stuff on his channel we loved. And then we gave him a few like, hey, maybe take a shot at this for the concert. And he was like, do you mind if I like try like a full pass on a few of these? And we were like, oh, sure. And what came back was so good. And it was honestly the first time that had ever happened with us where someone else really made something that we were like, shit, we could just put this up. It's done. So after that, we were like, we would love to keep working with this guy in whatever capacity. I like bringing on co-directors, even especially on sketch type things, meaning like uh, modular things where there's a lot of, not necessarily someone who's right next to you all the time, but somebody where you can delegate different whole things to. 
uh, same with on, I think you should leave the Tim Robinson show. Like I brought on another director at a certain point. Cause I was like, I just don't want to have to location scout every single set. And so why don't I hand off some of these to somebody else? And then I could still be there as a producer. Who was the other director? Um, Alice Matthias. I just didn't want to mispronounce her last name. That's oh, actually I why I didn't say it. Cause I don't know if I've ever, <laughs> I don't know sorry, if I've ever said it. I don't know if I've ever. I was ever, just thinking like if I'm maybe to think if she's I've ever reading, said, she would want a shout out. Well, yeah, I just am trying to think if I've ever even said, <laughs> said or heard her last name out loud. Listening and or reading. Um, you can fact check me on that one and just overdub, <laughs> just overdub me for a second if you need to. What was it about Mike's style that you think worked as sort of a more graphic version of the types of stuff that you guys do? It's less his style than that he just understands the comedy. So a lot of times as soon as you're bringing in anybody else, whether it's sound mixers or anything, the stuff always takes like a left turn and then you have to slowly get it back to make sure your jokes aren't messed up. But he has good joke instincts. So yeah. he's really good at After Effects and that style of stuff, but not in a way he's aware of when the effects are starting to mess up the joke and he corrects it in his own brain or in his own computer before we have to look at it, which is, that's the thing that's never yeah. happens. Also though, I like a lot of the style choices in the special were him being like, I'd really love to do this kind of a thing or like him and Keeve sort of got together and, and conceptualized different tones for almost every song. And it turned into this thing that I think ended up being really cool. We were almost taking like a little journey through the styles of rap and R&B videos over the last like 30 years almost. Yeah, he's the one that like really wanted to do a Hype Williams style exactly. video. For focused as fuck. Like he's like, we should do that sped up like Buster Rhymes thing. And we were like, oh yeah, that'd be super fun. And then you see it and you're like, fuck, this is so exciting. It's a, <laughs> yeah. I remember that. It looks really neat. He also just knows all the people in effects. So like that can do things. So on like Let's Bash with the scribbling, I feel like we've even had videos where we were like, oh, it'd be so cool to like scribble on top of this. Because we kind of did it with um, Spell It Out, even in some ways. And we it's just such a long journey for us to get it done. Because we're like, all right, now who does that? And kind of have to just <laughs> start from that question with no knowledge of who to get. And he's like, oh, I know exactly. I got this one. Like, he just, he can actually get those things I done. I know how to do that, though, Keith. Oh, great. Do you want to ask me how? Yeah, how? Okay, so you get the film reels, oh, and God. you put it over a light board. Then you get out <laughs> your little white pencil, and you scribble and you scratch over. Oh, yeah. you did now. <laughs> then you're going to want to put it on your Steenbeck. Get out your film splicer. Uh-huh. There's <laughs> a cool NYU pr- professor here. <laughs> I did go to NYU film school. So this song was performed in your, your first live show, in essentially every interview you almost ever did, people have asked you about touring. And I, so I imagine with your first show, there's a certain amount of nervousness. But as I eventually wrote in the review of my review of the show, I was also sort of nervous uh, for you. <laughs> Good. Good. I hope like everybody's fan, very nervous. I think, there's, I think there's some trappings of a live show that like represent a conundrum of the types of things you're trying to do. Uh, in terms of like the difference between rapping and frapping and comedy and music, mm, yeah, is for you guys philosophically, what did you feel like you needed to figure out, and then what do you think was your attempt to solve that? A lot of it was kind of in your article because I because I haven't reread it from a year ago, but I remember you referenced like us talking about possibly touring when we were talking about pop star two years earlier, and then kind of where we had landed because you saw the show. And then, so you kind of covered you kind of covered it in your thing. I was like, yeah, that's about right. We weren't exactly sure how 
fake cool to pretend to be versus self-deprecating and <laughs> acknowledging that we're frappers and crappy. And then we found a balance, I guess, that we were actually very happy with at that show as well. Yeah, doing doing live shows in the context of a comedy festival or our own show where people showing up are people that are specifically into what we do helps us a lot decide those things because first and foremost, it is a comedy show, which has been our MO from the jump. Like we're comedians that happen to use music to tell jokes some, some of the time. And because of that, and because the odds are that most people coming have heard a lot of the songs, we need to think of ways outside of just the songs to keep it entertaining and funny. But at the same time, we're told often that people do kind of bump the songs both earnestly and ironically, but the line is blurry and that's part of the fun of it. Same way that we're like obsessed with tenacious D music or something. And I would listen to it in my spare time. So we understand the value of also just playing the songs people have told us that they like. So that's, that is what you're talking about. That's finding the balance between those two things. So we try and just mix it up and make sure it doesn't turn into just one or the other. Do you think there's one thing, one decision or one thing in particular you think helped the most? For us, it was a lot of making sure that the stage didn't, I mean, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot and then have people be like, he's wrong. They got it wrong. But like, we're always worried about being hung, hanging ourselves out to dry and being like, we're just three dudes on stage yelling into microphones. Like you, we definitely wanted to make sure we had something on the screens behind us and maybe cutting a few songs off a little sooner than we would normally do it because we get bored of it or, you know, stuff like that where you just want to kind of keep people on their toes and keep it moving. It's a careful balance of us being very bored and wanting to cut everything down very small (laughs) and then being like, wait, people are going to have actually paid money and been looking forward to this and like had to get a babysitter maybe, or, you know, taking an Uber, like they're going to be annoyed if it's too short, but we're like, but who would want to see this for more than 45 minutes max? (laughs) (laughs) Like a tight 45 minutes. I mean, the Clusterfest show had to be an hour straight. And so that was that felt like the perfect length, but now we're doing our own. And so we have to make it a little longer and we're constantly being like, eh, it felt good at now. Does anyone like this though? <laughs> uh, it was a learning experience for sure. Doing those first, like the warm up show and Clusterfest, in that we very nicely learned that there were certain songs people were happy just to hear, you know? And we were like, man, maybe we're going to need to subvert this in some way. But there were some of them where we just, we like had a contingency plan if it felt wrong, but then we got out there and it was like, oh no, it just feels right. It's just like people playing. just wanted to sing along to it. Yeah. Which is it was, it was a pleasant really nice. surprise. Actually. Yeah. As you approach now doing a longer show, how do you conceive of the idea of building a show? How do you look at the thing as a 90 minute thing? What is the idea of building a show? I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, we spent so much time getting the Clusterfest show ready with all the screens with Mike Diva and all the costume changes and choosing how do we choose the order of songs in a way that allows us to do the costume changes and is a nice variety and isn't exhausting for for the crowd and et cetera, et cetera, that we were very happy with it. And when we got off stage at Clusterfest, we were like, yeah, that was our show. We should be doing this for the next year. And now we have nothing booked. So it wasn't so much as trying to make a whole new 90 minutes because only if only the people that read your article or were there know what we did at that show. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, 
We're not reinventing it. We're no, going to update we're, some we're stuff, just, adding some stuff. Yeah, we're just adding and updating. Exactly. Yeah. We're not like, we, yeah, we were very happy with that one and we worked hard on it. We deserve <laughs> to get to go do it for a while. <laughs> so what I've read is that you, you did a couple of the Bash Brothers songs at Clusterfest, then Clusterfest happened. Afterwards, you're like, you had a desire to do more songs with these characters, um, <laughs> just like in in your free time between projects. So like creators at your level, there's there's gatekeepers, but like the biggest limit is time in terms of like what you do or not do. Why is this the thing that you decided to spend time on? And even if you don't didn't know then, looking back on it, why do you think this is the thing you decided to spend your free creative energy on? I think it, for me, it was twofold. The first one was we were having fun doing it and it was an idea that had zero pressure on it because we were fine if no one ever heard it or saw it. And the second one was all three of us were really busy. I was shooting Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Kiva's was working on the Tim Robinson show and a bunch of other stuff for our company. And Yorm uh, was living on the East Coast and working on Miracle Workers and um, Last OG and traveling with his wife while she was making her movie and their family and stuff. So we were really kind of scattered. And this was a low stakes unofficial Lonely Island thing that we could kind of work on in between the cracks. Yeah, if we had tried to like write a screenplay for a new movie with just like Andy being like, it's 3 p.m., I could come over for two hours before, because uh, I got off Brooklyn Nine-Nine early, like we would have nothing to show for the year or we'd have like an outline yeah. of a, a movie. Whereas music is so instantaneous, you can come in for a day and at the end of the day, you can have a, pretty much a whole song right. demo done. And be like, well, we actually made something. It's kind of one of the only things. And you don't need to like remember like a screenplay. You'd have to be like, all right, well, let me relook through our notes and try to get my head back into wh- what this thing is. <laughs> and by the time you're kind of back in the flow of it, you're, you have to go back to Brooklyn Nine-Nine or somewhere like that. Whereas, um, yeah, music, you can just hop in. So what I read was you had these songs and then you were, one of you were talking to the comedy special guy at Netflix, who apparently was also an Oakland A's fan. And you agreed you could do something cheaply enough that there are no expectations and you do a lot of the stuff yourself, like SNL. So fair warning, while I was writing this question, I saw someone tweet an Adrian Rich an Adrian Rich quote, which is, But poems are like dreams. In them you put what you don't know you know. Uh, I I know you read the book, but at least as you said, you want to capture what it was like uh, being kids and dreaming what you imagined their life to be. <laughs> Same thing where you did some error-appropriate rapping, except for when you didn't. <laughs> what was the balance you were hoping for and why? And and moreover, you had these songs. Why was this the thing you did with it? Like, why a visual poem? <laughs> I mean, for the last question, it was just, yeah, we we looked at 10 songs and went, do we just, once again, just drop them on SoundCloud and see if anybody notices? Do we just put them up as an album on, you know, Apple Music and all those places and see if anybody notices. And then we were just kind of like the funniest thing, the whole thing, the the main joke of all of it is why did we make it? So then the more you make it, the funnier the joke of why is kind of. Mm-hmm. So what's the most fancy highfalutin like pedestal we could put this thing that really shouldn't <laughs> exist? Uh-huh. Also, we kept coming back to the idea of the long form video, which is like had this huge resurgence. Like basically everyone who writes about this correctly is comparing it to Lemonade. But since Lemonade, there's been like 15 other ones of these. And a lot of them kind of have, some have flown under the radar, some are bigger. But like 
even since we decided to do this one, like five more came out. It, it just felt sort of of the moment to do it that way. And as is our proclivity, we like dressing up our turds as fancy as possible. So it's always been, it's always kind of just been the joke. You'll sometimes describe your stuff as stupid or dumb. Uh, I've, I've asked Scott Ockerman this once and he actually referenced you guys, but what is the difference between your dumb or stupid and the sort of dumb or stupid that is associated with certain poorly extreme mainstream comedies associated with certain stars that I won't name for you? What is, how is this dumb or stupid different? I think we mainly mean silly when we're saying that, right? Not actually. Uh, to dumb. me, there's the distinction always has been, and I'll bring it back to when I was a kid and a teenager, and I was obsessed with like Sandler and Jim Carrey stuff. And I would have friends or like my parents or people would be like, I'd be like, you have to watch this. And they'd be like, I don't know, it just seems stupid. And I would always say, yeah, but they know it's stupid. That's the difference. They're, choosing to be stupid from a place of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And therefore that is making me happy because they're saying, we know what the world is. And in spite of that, we're going to spend our time on this as adults. <laughs> and it was the same thing. We always used to talk about like watching um, Stella, those guys that we were also like, they're the best. We love them so much. And they would be in suits and ties doing the dumbest thing you could possibly think of choosing to use their, you know, adulthood for turning the world into a cartoon, essentially. And if you're the type of person who enjoys that, which we are, and we hope that the people who like our stuff are, that it's like, it's a comment, it's a choice. It's saying like, we want to make something dumb to make people laugh and smile and feel happy. Watching it, I was struck sort of by the pacing. I've talked to SNL writers before and the nature of even with pre-tape because you have to play sketches in front of a live audience you have to like establish incredibly quick what the thing is that is happening and even like pop stars super fast super clear and also coming up from the internet is so fast this is slower like there's still tons of jokes but it's some songs don't have like here's a clear premise we're going to establish in the first 10 seconds what was that like writing for you was it exciting to have a sort of different thing what do you think it is that sort of came out that style i mean yeah the longer it was the funnier it was going to be on some level because each minute that it keeps going on and we haven't changed to a different sketch or a different idea and it's still that <laughs> idea the joke is compounding if you're tuned into that frequency i guess if somebody who just wanted some other joke they have to turn it off but the, the, the i mean if it had been 45 minutes would it be 15 minutes funnier if it had been two hours would you be like what is wrong with these guys i don't know <laughs> like somewhere that the, its existence is the joke so and the thing we're parroting of the uh, once it became a visual thing uh those things are have a pace to them that you have to kind of live by if you're going to be accurate and those things as much as i love them they're all a little bit boring across the board i've never seen one that is com not boring at all they're all kind of trying their all, patience yeah, in an artistic way. They all way. delight in their own thoughtfulness. Yes. And they fall in love with their shots. They're all like, this shot's beautiful. Just let it go with like a weird drone sound for a while. <laughs> Is this something also to Netflix that sort of, because it's so opt-in, you don't have to keep the eyeballs in the same way? I, I'm trying to think of what about it is... You know, it's it's at home and it's a it's it's a different medium than what you've worked with. Yeah, although they at at Netflix, your metrics are definitely 
they want you to hold on to the eyeballs. They're that the pressure of that is not relieved at Netflix. They are tracking who turns it off and who watches to completion. Yeah. So it's just more that the whole concept is so obviously not a broad commercial concept that why try to make it more commercial? Like, then you're going to make it for nobody. This thing is made for people who want this. There were times when we were like, should we shorten it? And even like Seth Meyers was like, why? Anybody who's watching wants the most of it they can get. Anybody who doesn't want it, you're cutting three minutes here and there is not going to make the difference to them. So make it for the people who are going to like it. I interview you guys right before Popstar came out and on the way out, I said something about how much I loved the movie and there was a real vibe in the room and in interviews since... (laughs) What kind of vibe? There was a vibe and I'll describe the vibe. In interviews since, you've explained that by that time, you had a sense that it wasn't going to be this giant, huge. Oh smash. God, at that point, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, we were like, "Yeah, thanks, man. You'll be the, you'll be the." Yeah, right. we had probably like just before talking to you had been having a conversation internally of like, "Have you noticed there's no ads?" So they, <laughs> right. And they didn't, use the, they didn't use the poster we had all agreed on, and so now when you see the poster on taxi cabs, it just says the word pop star. Uh, we were like being like, it could say the word bubble gum. It could say the word shoe. It's literally just a thing. We don't know if it's a new uh, American Idol show that's going to be on Fox next year. You know, like literally it said nothing. It just said the word pop star on the top of the thing. You're like, that could, like, hey, that could literally say street. Uh, like they just pick, <laughs> pick a word out of the dictionary. You've done nothing to help sell this movie. The process of that happening, do you feel like afterwards you accepted you know, we're going to create a specific thing. Uh, we're going to make a thing for people with an incredibly specific Venn diagram of interest. Do you think there is a certain amount of like, well, maybe the giant thing isn't for us right now? I don't know if it was like in reaction to that. No. I, but, think, I mean, certainly if Popstar had been a big hit, then Universal immediately the next day would be like, start writing something else. You know, what's your next movie? Right. So in that way, we would have been working on a movie because they would have been demanding, you know, they, the opportunities and demand would have been there. So yes, in the way of how it uses our free time, but I don't, but we're not making a special calculation in that way. If we had gotten really excited about a movie idea, I think we would have just done that. It was just what we ended up doing because we're artists. <laughs> <laughs> As you mentioned, Yorma lives in New York and was working on stuff in New York. And also because the Bash Brothers are two people. But <laughs> Yorma is less involved in this and other Lonely Island projects. Not to say the project is lacking, but is there a distinctly Yormanian your flavor that is missing <laughs> that you can put a finger on? Is it epitomized by the Joe Montana stuff? Um, we definitely went out of our way to make sure he was a part of it because we didn't want it to be weird, obviously. Um, and the three of us are still working together all the time and... We're going to see him in t- as soon as About this is over. Minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I um, don't know. I'm not sure what, what his special spices he adds that was not missing. It would be impossible to know unless he had been, unless we could go back and do the one where he's there in the room with us the whole time and yeah. seeing what he added. But certainly adding Joe Montana at the end and, you know, he shines as Walt Weiss, certainly. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's the beauty of it, though, of us being like, all right, now how are we going to put Yorm in? And then we thought of like a couple quick ways and they all kill and it's nice. For you guys in general, is it, I don't know if, you, an, uh, the, the example I thought of was Animal Collective. If it involves two of them, it's an Animal Collective record. And if it doesn't, it's only solo. It's Panda Bear. Does that feel, yeah, it's Panda Bear <laughs> or Avitaire. Yeah. For you guys, if it involves two, you're just like, okay, this is Lonely Island. And then let's figure out. 
That was kind of it, our rule at SNL. For the that, digi- it was a digital short if two of us worked on it. Yeah, if one of us broke out and just made something on their own, we didn't put SNL digital short necessarily before it, but if two of us did. But that's even, I mean, half the songs on our Lonely Island albums, even some of them are just, a lot are just you because we were making them for SNL. A lot of them have like, I just had sex, I'm not on it because I just literally went to bed that night and so I'm not on it. <laughs> Uh, I'm on a boat, obviously the most clear example, Yorm left town. But I will say even in this, it's Lonely Island (laughs) Presents. uh, And that's a specific choice to kind of separate it a little bit. That was also to manage expectations of people who want a new, like normal Lonely Island record to go like, oh, this doesn't count in that way. This is a weird side idea. And also the fact that we are producing shows for other people now, it kind of, we were hoping goes hand in hand with that. Like, in some of the promotions for Pen15, it would say Lonely Island, you know, stuff like that. Or, you know, and creatively, we had almost nothing to do with that. That's all them, but we helped them produce it. So the fact that we are producing Entity, I think, also helped. I was going to ask you more about the production company because you've had it for a bit, but you had two sort of really breakout things, one with Pen15 and one with I Think You Should Leave. What do you hope it means for something to be produced by you guys? Like, what do you hope gets out into the world? Do you hope, like, when people see something's produced by Judd Apatow, they have certain associations? You know, what are you hoping sort of, like, your thing is able to do as you're able to create more content without being directly involved? I can't, I don't know what our, if that we had any thesis statement going in or whatever, but I will say in hindsight on those two specifically, they're both shows that follow exactly what we did even at SNL, which is making things that are not pitchable, but, but turn out good. <laughs> like that was, that was how all of our shorts at SNL, as I'm sure we've talked about with you specifically and with other media plenty of times, but we're like, we wouldn't go to the table. We wouldn't put our things up for table reads because it was ex- their execution based ideas that could sound great or terrible, depending how you want to hear them. And same with Pen15. That's kind of, I mean, they tried to pitch it and we can say, literally, it's not a very pitchable show. (laughs) Or maybe their pitch was great, but it was not a, people did not hear the pitch well. Right. And uh, But we gave them some money to make a a presentation. Yeah, it was back when we had um, a little bit of a fund Mm -hmm. to fund things. And so we just... And then they came back with their presentation and we were all like, oh, fuck, they're so good. And by the way, even with the presentation, a 10-minute version of it, we still had a lot of difficulty getting it sold in on the air. And we had to make it, both those shows also were made for extremely cheap, like yeah. about half the price of what um, a show like that would normally cost. What do you think about other stuff you guys have? What do you, th- is there a common threads you think about just sort of things you have coming up or you hope I mean, I've, personally speaking, I always think the cool part of it is just helping people that have a really unique perspective make something. And for for us, I'm not saying we wouldn't do things diff- like outside of this scope, but the reason we love what we do and getting to do it is we love comedy and we love broad comedy. We love niche comedy. But the thing that generally has a harder time getting made, especially right now, is like comedy for the sake of comedy, just like the place in the world where it's just for people who live and breathe comedy and want to laugh and want to get surprised by some weird thing. And then you have like a show like pen 15, which elevates past that because they're actually really brilliantly weaving in social commentary and emotion and stuff like that, that like breaks your heart. Um, 
But the thing about that show that initially struck us was like, holy shit, these guys are funny. Like this is yeah. hard laughs, fucking funny, like physical joke writing. It was, it was all there in the presentation they made. And I also want to say, Tim, for, Tim, oh, Tim. Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, and obviously Tim as well. Um, but then also like we produced Brigsby bear for Kyle and those guys and that is funny, but it was more just like, whoa, this is neat. Like, what a cool, specific movie that I've never seen before. And how cool would it be to help get that made? And then they obviously did a great job, too. And I just want to say for the record that if somebody had a really good idea for like a multicam on CBS, um, that would just like run, I don't know, six, seven seasons, <laughs> 22, 22 a season. Yeah. We're fine with that. Well, we'll we don't. We'll just be kind of bored by it. Yeah, but we're... <laughs> We'll be at Upfronts uh, celebrating it, and we'll cash those checks. Yes, that's why I preface it by saying we would do stuff other otherwise as well. Yeah, but yes, at the time Popstar came out, I wrote a, a incredibly long article about you guys. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I really, appreciate um, it. <laughs> I I love doing it, but if I and I wrote it as Popstar felt like a culmination of a lot of stuff that you had been doing to that point. And in so much as culminations, they sort of feel like end of eras, even in the moment they might not. But it, it did feel like you were doing a lot of stuff and Popstar felt like a fully formed version of that. And this feels like the first step in whatever next is. <laughs> and though I'm not saying you're going to make tons of things like this, but if this is the first indication of like the future of Lonely Island, what do you, what do you hope for and what do you think this sort of suggests? Oh, man. Yeah. I'd, li- I'd like to say we'd thought about it that much. Well, I'm asking you to think about it now. <laughs> this is our life of Pablo kind of area. <laughs> We're going more. I don't know. I feel like for us, we always kind of just stick to one rule, and it's, is this making us laugh right now? And that has been it from the jump. And anytime we've strayed from that, we've regretted it. Yeah. So... For all I know, we'll do another fully straightforward Lonely Island record. I think that could be super fun again. Uh, we might do another movie that's for a studio if that comes up and we have an idea we're excited about. It, it's really just what's making us feel inspired and excited that day. Yeah. It's also the world is of media is changing so fast in terms of what's um, like... YouTube is not the same place as as it was when we used to make videos that we wanted to have on YouTube. Like the way the algorithm works is completely different now and the the audience that's on there is completely now and you don't get sent funny videos on YouTube almost uh, ever anymore. It's just vloggers and then the occasional like Marvel movie trailer. And it's so so that audience isn't there (laughs) in the same way. And same with... TV isn't the same as everybody knows, and there's been a thousand think pieces about. And so when we make a collection of songs, like let's say we make a a more like our first three records, I don't know where those videos are going to live next time, and that will influence how we bring it out as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, cool sound effect. <laughs> that sound means it's uh, time for the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Oh, uh, laughing! I like that. Laughing, laughing round. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I once interviewed Seth, where we painstakingly went through the bracket to pick the favorite digital short. Oh, so I in saw kind, that. what's the best? <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite sketch Seth wrote? 
Oh, man. He wrote one sketch. It's not my favorite thing he ever wrote, but I just remember thinking, like, God, Seth is such a good head writer. He wrote a sketch. I want to say it was um, it was like in a high school classroom, and I think they were picking the theme for prom. And what he did was he got, like, 10 cast members in it doing like three or four lines each of a failed character they had tried at the table. So like every, he kind of like cherry picked all the moments that worked about stuff people had done that failed and made it into a sketch that really worked and played great. And I remember when he did that at the table, I remember thinking to myself, holy shit, Seth is really smart. And it, it was both, a win for the show and also like a personal win for every one of those cast members to feel good about the character yes. they had created. It was that had good been leadership. Yeah. Everyone came out being like, man, was- I guess I can make it on SNL. <laughs> you know, like it was so, it was so positive. Now, now I'm blanking on the name of it, but the prank show one with Christopher Walken that Seth oh. was in that actually yes. aired this season, I believe before we got the show. So we just watched. I think it's called Pranksters. It's like a uh, right, yeah. It's like a Nickelodeon style show. Christopher Walken is the host, and they call they call the the victims of the prank stiffly Stiffersons, and it says it's like he's yeah. the host, and he kind of has like probably bleached, you know, tips. What 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 happened? I jumped out and pranked him to death with a tire iron. <laughs> What? Yeah, you should have seen the look on his face, classic. I don't, um, I, I, I don't understand. What's not to understand, he was a stiffly stifferson, so I stuck it to him. Whammy! <laughs> Blammy, wowie zowie, you just been pranked. Can we, uh, can we cut the sound effects, Ted, please? Also, I don't know that Seth wrote it. I just assume he did, because he's the star of it. I... Can't imagine. It was the year before we got it. there. That's why I don't. I feel like he had to have written. Had to. Have, yeah. yeah. We did this whole interview about this one song. Can we do a very short version of it, uh, just about the song "Karate Guy"? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, with pleasure. I like to kick it. I'm a karate guy. We not talking about kicking a can. We talking about hanging with friends. And when we say don't mean using a rope we mean chilling but it doesn't have to be cold it could be any temperature 60 or 80 there just has to be friends and drinks and ladies and good conversation and don't forget the party ice that's how you kick it like the karate guy i like to kick tell me everything about it as reasonably quickly as you would like oh man I have no recollection of why or how we came up with it. I know Andy, at the time, for some reason, said the key. And that felt so juvenile and stupid. I was in a phase, an annoying phase of socially saying Kia like that a lot. Yeah. Um, You know, you could picture that. That's a normal phase a lot of people go through. (laughs) It's a common phase. Um, And then because of that, I think tried to shoehorn it into a song successfully. Once again, we had the freedom of that. These were three characters and in the past. So the song could really stink it up. (laughs) (laughs) And then that beat is so slow. And we, for whatever reason, started doing the verses in this like really annoying over explainy style, (laughs) which I have to guess was Akiva's idea. I don't know what was going (laughs) on, though. 
There's was, a lot was, of clarifications in karate. Well, guy. that's the on a comedic level, I know exactly what's going on, which is that <laughs> it's guys that are very worried that you're going to misunderstand when they use slang and take it literally. Yeah. And so they're going to have to well, walk beat, back. Every verse just starts with one line that gets walked back the entire verse. Which tracks when you think about the chorus, like it's a yeah. laid back beat. We like to kick it. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, it, it all starts there. They like to kick it, but they don't mean kicking a can. <laughs> no. They mean hanging with friends. And when they say hanging, it doesn't, doesn't mean, mean using, using a, rope. a rope. It means chilling, but it, it doesn't, doesn't have, have to be, be cold. cold. It could be any temperature. 60 or 80. We're just saying the song now. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that's every verse just kind of does that. The point is, yeah. it sucks, and it sucks <laughs> a lot. It's still one of my favorites because <laughs> it, tr- it truly never even starts. It's like watching a car crash in slow motion because it's it's moving at such a fucking snail's pace. It's kind it's- of just too guysy in that you're pretty sure they've never even been to a party by the end. <laughs> 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 and that they've never gotten to hang out with friends. They've never rolled in a car, not rolled on the ground. I, I think maybe they did roll on the ground. You could use the song Karate Guy as torture. Like if you played that song over and over again, <laughs> someone would would lose their mind after about the fifth time, I think. Yep, that's about right. Available for streaming. Yep, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good ad. <laughs> My goal is to one day do an oral history of the Ford Focus Group sketch from I Think You Should Leave. Yeah. I don't know how much either of you were involved, but can you tell me everything you remember? Oh, I was, Keith, I was, Keith was I'm there from, yeah. from every moment of it. I don't, I mean, this is just can only be, you know, for my excerpts in the oral history. Everybody will ha- come to it from a completely different perspective. Obviously, everyone's going to bring something else. But basically, uh, Ruben, who plays the gentleman, the main star, the we just got his audition on tape, like our casting directors brought him in. And so we were just going through auditions and Zach and Tim saw it and we're like, I like not joking. They're like, I think we've discovered a star. And then they played it for me and I cried laughing. His audition (laughs) tape is so funny funny. that we also brought him in to read other roles just to see if maybe we could use him a lot. And uh, yeah, basically we watched that audition every day for like two weeks, just crying, laughing about it. And because it's exactly what you see. And then, yeah. yeah. And then we brought him in and we loved him. And it turns out he used to do um, kind of Hollywood stars style. Um, it's hard to exactly describe. On I think it was on Don Francisco's show in Mexico and South America, where like they would cut to him for a joke. It's, on, it's some version of a peanut gallery, you know, where it's not quite a sidekick like Ed McMahon style, but... I've never seen it, so I'm only trying to repeat it as he explained it to me, basically, but where he would know one-liner jokes. And so whenever they needed a joke, they would go to him. He would do it. They could either be bad jokes that makes everyone groan or actually good ones. Um, I'm quite certain they were probably uh, the kind of jokes that don't age well today. Uh <laughs> But, but so, point being, he was like a seasoned performer. Yes, it wasn't he, like he's an not accident. a Craigslist rando that we're bringing in. He is a comedian who understood why it was funny. But he also does talk like that guy. It's not like that's not a put on in that way. <laughs> uh, Shut up, Paul. You probably love your mother-in-law. I actually do. Oh my God, he admitted it. <laughs> Paul. What? Paul. What? You have the. Good God ideas. Shut up. I'm doing the best at this. All right, maybe we should lay off Paul. That's what his wife said. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we loved him so much, we actually, there's a longer cut somewhere in a hard drive of, you know, the laser spine specialist one where they run into Connor O'Malley and he's like the, 
you, you know exactly what you're trying that there that one can go on longer and ruben walks in as another guy that's been hustled and he performs a song so there's three guys in there and he's so mad about something i don't know how we find that now because it's just in the editing you know hard drives that have been put in a closet but we got to bust that hard drive out. Got to do treat. it. I should do that. Just put it on Instagram. Uh, the goal is, uh, I will say a name of a song that you guys done, and you think of the first line or verse or whatever that comes to your head. You mean like a uh, another line, or just like what, like what, what, what memory, what pops yes, in your brain anything. when he says really the song. whatever pops? It's a word association to your the Lonely Island songs. Got it. Starting with Lazy Sunday. No, I would say call us Aaron Burr from the way we're dropping Hamiltons. <laughs> uh, punch you in the jeans. Uh, Jurassic Five. You got taste, and it shows, my man. God damn you! My, your your jean brand got me throwing my hand. <laughs> my favorite part, as a fan of that song, who's not on it, is just that it doesn't matter as long as you're in them. But then minutes later, it's they can be on the clothesline. <laughs> It's, it's not what it's not giving you clear directives so. yeah that's another uh yeah that's punch you in the jeans is very um what do you call it untrustworthy narrator <laughs> yeah <laughs> two worlds collide ever since i came out my mama's butt i knew i was destined for greatness boombox <laughs> boombox for me isn't lyric so much as just the melody choices julian chose that's why that's every time that song comes on, it's what I remember just being like, God, he's so good at singing. I love listening to him sing. Keith? Uh, I don't know. Boiled Goose? Bartman? Yeah. Boiled Goose, go. Bartman. Uh, diaper Money? <laughs> I think it's one of Andy's best uh, verses. Ooh. Thank you for the nice plament. And I, in turn, now really understand your verse about Diaper Money. because I have Right, right. Now that you understand it, and you're like, ugh. My kid does need to shit. Yeah. Yeah, that was coming from a very real place. <laughs> Bless her heart. We're, we're all so much happier when she does. Uh, semicolon. Maybe I'll eat all you cats, Alf. I always really love that one. I also love my stomach's getting fat. Food. It's probably the worst one. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one that makes me laugh every time. Because the whole song stops for it as <laughs> if it's going to be really good. <laughs> it's treated as if it's a real clever one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh weirdo uh, best was, picture must be doing some right yeah first and first one that we did for the for the movie when mm-hmm. we just came in and we were just like let's just try to think of some songs this guy would do yep that's why it doesn't really have a place in the movie because <laughs> it, it wasn't made for anything specific ibiza ibiza was uh i mean you do all the steps for making paella so it's a useful song uh, in addition to just it's the second verse, not in the movie, but on the soundtrack. <laughs> I think, I mean, someone could really make some paella from the song, I believe. It's got to at least, or they could at least go grocery shopping for paella. For the starts of a really basic, bad tasting paella. <laughs> yeah, I wish somebody would. <laughs> Uniform on. That was the fullest realization. When we started on these, my first concept on Bash Brothers was that every song should sound like 88. Um, License tail, basically. Yeah, license license tail slash pause boutique slash everything, you know, um, Sir Mix a lot and Easy E's first record, that kind of stuff, where it's just all like cherry picking the sounds from 88, 89 that we love the most that we feel like still sound cool. And then after we did like two songs like that, so Uniform Mom was one of them, where we were really proud of like, ooh, 
our once again drew campbell we were like he really got the 808 sounds just right like let's this sounds like we're doing it and then we were like cool but then we did it on that one we don't need to make eight more of that but yeah that was the first one i love i'm not a hamburger but they call me big mac just the reason that i specifically like it is because it sounds like what the line in 88 actually would have been but it also sounds cool to me but it uh, definitely oh. you're definitely like oh if if they did this in 88 that would have been your first line of your verse if they had a super bowl <laughs> shuffle that yes. would be a lyric in their yes. super bowl shuffle <laughs> yes it just would have sounded like more like you know i'm not, not a hamburger, hamburger. <laughs> you're like but yeah we know me, you're not they, a hamburger they call me big mac <laughs> <laughs> oakland knights the round table i guess the greatest aphrodisiac is physical fitness makes me laugh these guys really believe that <laughs> and they might be right daddy Mm. This is really going down memory lane of something from one week ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's probably not what most people outside of me and Akiva would be excited about, but I, I was really, we had so much fun doing the like very end part where it gets all like Kanye Bonnie Varish with like the sort of layers of autotune. Yeah. The like stacked Harmonies. vocals and we actually did some harmony stuff, which, you know, no one cares about that. I even she, like played all the songs for my wife and she was like, yeah, it was fine. And I was like, but we, we made real music. And she's like, I know, but everyone can do that in music. I like you cause you're funny. <laughs> right. I think people assume that we have like, even the producers that I've mentioned are in the room with us or doing anything, but those are just people when the song is essentially almost exactly what you hear. We give it back to them and go now mix this to sound a little more pro. They're just like getting the frequencies, right? Like, yeah, it's just me and Andy in the room. So that's why we'd be so proud when we get it to sound like that. Cause there's, we're not getting help. Yeah. We're like, we made it sound like singing and autotune. Keith learned how to use autotune by himself. Exactly. <laughs> no one cares. They just expect it to sound good. Um, last question. So do you have anything that you've you tried in either SNL or different capacities that you, one of you or all of you have thought was really, really funny, but you can never get anyone except for the three of you to laugh at. And you, <laughs> you'll go to your grave being like, this is funny. I feel like Yorm would had definitely have some of these like from SNL times. Like that aired? It doesn't have to air. Oh. It could have maybe went to table or dress. Well, mine, mine was want to come with, but then Seth let me do it on Second Chance Theater and it was fine. Did you ever get to do Beetlejuice? I did one line of Beetlejuice in my monologue when I hosted. I like trotted out every failed impression I ever did. I tried to do Beetlejuice on SNL, but Mulaney and Seth love ripping on me for this because I, I, I did it um, sort of embedded in a meet the press sketch. <laughs> so it's like a very intentionally like a fuck you to the whole thing. But it was like, Everyone was doing political stuff. It was like a very political year, I'm sure, when I did it. And I never did political stuff. So that was kind of the joke. But it was basically like the host of Meet the Press was out sick and it was now being hosted by Beetlejuice. But it was also, also the a week- movie that was like 20 years old that had no, yeah. no <laughs> need for it to be in. Nothing new had happened. And it was Alec Baldwin was hosting and he was in Beetlejuice, but it didn't acknowledge that. And I remember being told afterwards, he was like, I don't understand. Was that because I was in Beetlejuice? What was the point of that? <laughs> like, right, right. Whereas the point to us was that it was funny that there was no point. But obviously, we learned that lesson over and over again. That doesn't really fly at SNL very often. It was. I thought it was good. Thanks, Keeve. Yeah. I will support you no matter what. Thanks. 
What give it give give the audience a little taste of this Beetlejuice? I don't remember in context of I mean in context of Meet the Press, it was still just doing Beetlejuice from the movie. So it'd be, <laughs> so it'd be like, hey, you hate sandworms. I can't stand them myself. A lot, of, a lot of like, um, <laughs> oh, almost perfect. A lot of him being like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Just a lot of swallows. a lot of people being like, Swallow you know, and then like talking about you know legislation and stuff, and then I'd be like, sounds good, but in order for me to do that, I gotta get married, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, my voice, my voice isn't warmed up. It's early, but point being, it's a bad impression, and it made no sense. It was very good. I didn't bring it up. Key brought it up. Now I feel humiliated. It should have aired. They should have had more <laughs> punk punk energy. All right, that's it. All right. All right, great. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch The Lonely Island Presents The Unauthorized Bash Brothers Experience on Netflix. The Lonely Island will be performing at Bonnaroo as well as Austin, D.C., Philadelphia, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Boston, Detroit, and Minnesota this June. Good One is produced by Mike Comte with production assistance from Marissa Melnick and Jessamine Molly. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back on Monday with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.